Our scripture reading this morning comes from Daniel verse, uh, chapter 3, verses 14 through 29. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you are ready when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music to fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of your hands, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury, and the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated, and he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them into the fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their other garments, and they were thrown into the burning, fiery furnace. Because the king's order was urgent and the furnace overheated, the flames of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the fiery furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, True, O king. He answered and said, But I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire, and they're not hurt, and their appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning fiery furnace. He declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire, and the satraps and the prefects and the governors and the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not had any power over the bodies of those men. The hair on their heads was not singed, their cloaks were not harmed, and no smell of fire came upon them. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I make a decree. Any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb and their houses laid to ruins, For there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. This is God's word. Amen. Well, thank you. I wasn't sure I even needed to preach after uh, our hymns there at the end. That was awesome. Thank you, praise team. Um, And it looks like my son's prayer came true this week. I was leading him in the Lord's Prayer, and he repeats after me. He's a four-year-old. And I said, and lead us not into temptation. And he said, and lead us not into vacation. Uh, and so I had to stop and explain that's actually a good prayer a lot of times to, to lead us into vacation, but it seems for many of us, we're all here, I came true and thankful to be together. 
Well, um, as you heard, my name is Jeff Skipper, one of the pastors here, the church planning apprentice here, uh, and thankful to be able to preach this morning. Uh, In case you haven't been with us, we're making our way through the Old Testament, and currently we're at the point where the southern kingdom, which is named Judah, has been conquered by the nation of Babylon, and thousands of their leading citizens have been taken from their homes, and they've been taken into exile. And we must remember that this didn't just happen. This was by God's design. It was punishment because they broke the covenant with God, the covenant that he made with them. Uh, But at the same time, we must remember that he wasn't finished with them. If you were here last week, we talked about his promise to restore them, and we saw that ultimately those promises are being fulfilled now in the church through the work of Jesus. This morning we'll look at uh, one of the young men who was taken into exile. Uh, His name was Daniel, and this is his book we're going to be in this week and next week. He was one of God's prophets who spoke God's word to the exiled people. And he and three of his friends, they were educated in Babylon. They grew up there. God gave them understanding above all the rest. Daniel 1.19 says, none was found like them. And so they, as foreigners, were put in positions of leadership in Babylon, which alone is amazing to see God do that. And so they're learning to serve their pagan masters loyally, but do that at the same time without compromising their greater loyalty to God. And that's a lot of what the first half of the book of Daniel is about. God's faithfulness as they live in that tension, and also to see that he's in control despite what things may look like and the difficulties that they face. That's what the book of Daniel is about. And so today we look at the account of the fiery furnace, and this uh, is about Daniel's three friends named Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We're going to call them that. They were renamed that in Babylon. That's their Babylonian names, and that's what our text calls them many times. Uh, Today I want us to see that like these three men, we too will be faced with suffering. And I want us to see what this story teaches us about what true faith really looks like in the context of suffering, and then finally to see that the gospel gives the only answer to how we can make it through suffering and ultimately death. And so if you look in your worship folder, you'll see an outline, uh, three points, the image and the threat. We're going to start to talk about suffering, what's happening here. Secondly, the faith-filled response. We're going to look at what these guys say and see what we can learn about faith in suffering. And then finally, God with us, the divine rescue. We're going to see the object of our faith and find out that we need a hope that surpasses suffering. So the image and the threat. So we need to do some background work because we jump in right in the middle here in chapter 3. So there's a king of Babylon. His name is Nebuchadnezzar. He's very prideful. He seems insecure. And yet at the same time, he shows flashes of what seemed to be true faith. In chapter 2, he has a dream and uh, he demands that the wise people of the nation come and tell him not only what the dream was and also interpret it for him. He won't even tell him the dream. No one can do it except Daniel. God reveals it to him. Daniel interprets the dream, and it says the king fell down on his face before Daniel. And in chapter 247, he said, Truly, your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings. Pretty good confession of faith, right? As time will tell, though, he only had an experience. Uh, There was no true change at this moment in the king. And I would just say at the beginning, that's a warning to us. If you hang on to just merely an experience that you had, it will fade. Uh, Only hanging on to God himself will bring true change in our lives and the Christian lives. Experiences are good for growth in faith, but beware of just holding on to one experience 
And as we come to chapter 3, we see that the king's tune changes uh, from what looked to be praising God back to pride in himself. So again, what's going on in chapter 3? In verses 1 through 7, we see that he sets up this image of gold. It's 90 feet high. And he puts it out in the open for everyone to see. And he basically says, look, guys, I've set up this image. I have a band over here ready to go. When the band fires up and you hear the music, hit the deck. He says, fall down and worship the image. That's, that's the instructions. And in verse 7, it seems pretty easy. It says everyone does it. What's he trying to accomplish here? Uh, this is his attempt to unify everyone under one common religion, and really it's pluralism. Uh, What he's saying is, you can continue to do your own religious thing in private as long as you worship this image out here in public. Keep what you do in private, but out here, bow down to the agenda, and whatever you do, don't claim that your God is the only God, the only way. So the king is happy. Things are going smoothly. Everyone's bowing down when the band fires up. I'm not sure how a trigon and a lyre sound, uh, if you look at the instruments again, Uh, But they play, everyone falls down, everything's good, but not for long. In verse 8, we see that a few men come and accuse some of the Jews of not obeying this command. It says the king is furious, and he calls the rebels into his office, and it's our three friends. It's Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, leaders in Babylon. And so Nebuchadnezzar kind of needs these guys. He likes these guys. They're above all the rest. And he gives them one last shot to get it together. You know, hey guys, I'm going to give you the benefit of the doubt. Maybe you didn't hear the music. Maybe you didn't understand the instructions. Let's try this one more time. And in verse 14, he gives them a test and a threat. So starting in verse 14, let's read. He said to them, is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I've set up? Now, if you're ready, when you hear the music, Fall down and worship the image that I've made, and everything will be well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into the burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Can we relate to this type of pressure? Sure, I I think we can on a a much lower uh, scale. uh, We can relate to that. We too live in a world of pluralism. We live in a world where a private faith is fine, but a public faith is not, especially one that claims exclusivity. Absolute truth. And so we feel this to a much lesser degree than being thrown into a furnace here in, in our society, but we know the feeling nonetheless. And we all come to points in our lives where if we confess and live out our faith, it will mean suffering for us in some form. But on the other hand, if we give in to the pressure, it may mean gain for us in the eyes of the world. It could be something like just being at school, where Drew prayed a few minutes ago, uh, to fit in. Right? Some of you can maybe relate to that. Or possibly to attain a certain position where you can't show your faith, you can't show what you truly believe in when asked, or it may cost you. And a few weeks ago, Drew spoke loosely related on this topic from Jeremiah. And the sermon was entitled, Living Prophetically Before the Powers. And I'd encourage you to listen to that if you weren't here. And because of that, for today, I want to focus specifically on the aspect of suffering and for living out our faith, suffering in general, what true faith looks like in suffering and what will bring us through it. And so, first, why does God bring us into suffering? Right? Why does he put... Guys in positions like this, in a predicament like this, and and how does he use it in our lives? Well, 
our assurance of pardon told us that God uses testing and suffering to refine us, to strengthen our faith. Job 23.10 says, when he has tried me, I shall come out as gold. Precious metals are purified in heat. The impurities are melted away, and the process is the same with us. In the furnaces of suffering, we become people of substance. We become people of depth when we go through furnaces of suffering. God takes out his chisel and begins to chip away at our self-reliance, back into who brings us back to himself, into what we were meant to be. And suffering makes us wise. Often the people you want to learn from and be around are people who've suffered in their lives. Suffering teaches us how to be empathetic. Suffering teaches us how to weep with those who weep. If you've never been broken, you'll have a really hard time relating to people who are broken. It makes us stronger and it makes us softer at the same time. That's what suffering does. It's one of the things we don't want but we most need, like salad or the gym. For me, that would be salad or the gym or accountability. It's one of those things we don't want but we most need it. I I heard growing up that you finally kind of become a man or you grow up when you move out of the house. Right? It's just like automatic. That's when it happens. Eh, not necessarily, right? Uh, or maybe it's when you get married. That's the next step. You know, that's when you grow up, you know, or, or when you have kids. Uh, for me, it wasn't any of those. Uh, it was when God brought me to a place of suffering. When he turned up the heat like I've never felt before in my life, and that's when he completely changed me in a very deep way. But know that surviving and thriving in suffering is not automatic. It's not just a given because suffering can also destroy you. And it can lead you to a life of anger and bitterness towards God and others. And it all comes down to if what we're grasping onto by faith. The object that we're grasping onto doesn't have the power to work in us through suffering and bring us through it. We need something that can bring us through the, the furnaces of suffering and ultimately through the furnace of death that we all must face. And we also need to know what true faith looks like in order to suffer well. So we're going to see that by looking at these three and how they respond to the king's test. In what ways do their response show us how to respond and endure suffering by faith? And so the faith-filled response. Let's read their response in verses 16 through 18. They said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you've set up. That's a big boy answer. Uh, They ate a big breakfast, I'm telling you, because that is hardcore answer right there. I want us to walk through this response and, and see what we can learn about what true faith looks like in suffering, and we could name a bunch. But I want to settle on five this morning. That specifically apply in the context of suffering. So, what can we learn here about what true faith looks like? First, true faith obeys God even when it hurts. And even when it costs us. Why didn't these three guys just bow down to the image and move on? Right? They could have easily rationalized this in many ways. And you can hear them now. Hey, look, we can bow down now and then. It's not a big deal. No need to cause a scene out here. Let's just do it and move on with our lives. Or, hey, look, if we stay alive, we can have a greater influences as leader, leaders here for our people in exile. 
we can benefit them. So let's not lose our position over something so insignificant. Music plays, just bow down, just get it over with and move on. Because God knows our hearts anyways. Right? God knows our hearts. But they don't do this. Why not? First and second commandment. They say, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall have no carved image, any likeness to anything created. And you shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. True faith obeys even when it hurts or costs us. And we're often guilty of bending what God has said clearly in order to justify sin, uh, in order to benefit ourselves, or because if we obey, it may lead to some type of suffering. I mean, how many times have have we thought, well, God knows my heart, and then proceeded to engage in sin or compromise our beliefs for the sake of preserving ourselves? Can you relate to that at all? Have you ever done that or thought that? That went through your mind before sin. It's true. God does know our hearts. Absolutely. But our actions show the state of our hearts. The, the real question is, do we know God's heart? Do we know God's heart? We see the heart of God most spectacularly and gloriously displayed in the gospel when he gave his son for us. If we see that, then we'll obey even when it hurts because we know that God will work that for our good in obedience. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll obey my commandments. So just ask us, where are we rationalizing sin in our lives? What God has said clearly, we cloud it up a little bit. Because we know if we obey, uh, it'll lead to a setback. Um, But if we compromise, we'll gain in the eyes of the world. There is still more grace for us in Jesus. Absolutely, grace upon grace but the call is still to come back and obey and trust God when it costs us believing that the reward in heaven is much greater than gaining any crumbs on earth true faith obeys even when it costs us true faith doesn't rationalize sin which they could have easily done here secondly true faith entrusts itself to God it doesn't defend itself if you look in verse 16 it's funny the first thing they do is they refuse to defend themselves O king, we have no need to answer you in this matter. They give no theological lecture or tirade. They don't begin ranting at the king. They just have this quiet, steadfast, determined faith. That's what they do. Jesus was the same way. We're told that Jesus opened not his mouth when he was accused. When he suffered unjustly, he opened not his mouth. When reviled, he did not revile in return. Instead of defending themselves, they entrust themselves to God in faith. So I ask, when we suffer unjustly or when we're misunderstood by others, is the first thing we start to do defend ourselves? Or do we entrust ourselves to God who is the judge of all the earth who shall do right? Do we defend or do we pray? Peter says the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials. That's his job. That's what he does well. Do we trust him? These guys believe that. True faith doesn't defend itself, but entrusts itself to God who will do right. And because they refuse to defend themselves, that leads us to our third point. True faith doesn't avoid suffering. True faith doesn't try to wiggle out of suffering. It enters into it, as hard as it is. If you notice, they don't try to avoid it. They don't scheme and try to run out of there or how they can bash the image and break it down. They resolve to go into the furnace. True faith knows suffering will come, but it faces it head on, knowing that God's in control. 
that he uses it for our good and he will do right. Because it's in the furnace of suffering where our faith is most clearly displayed. That's where our faith is displayed. The reality of it is displayed most clearly. It's in times of suffering where we are a testimony. Our faith becomes a testimony to an unbelieving world. They watch us when we suffer. The world watches us when we suffer and will see if we will give up our faith or if God will give up on us. And at the same time, suffering serves the purpose to encourage God's people. God's people watch us when we suffer too. And there's not much more encouraging to us to watch somebody cling on to God in faith through times of suffering. That will stir you up in your faith. Brian Chappell, he's a pastor in our denomination. He said the most powerful testimony Christians have at times is not the fact that they live on easy street, but that their relationship with God sustains them even when their worlds collapse. Knowing that, true faith doesn't avoid suffering. God uses it. Fourthly, uh, true faith grabs onto a specific object. Notice they say, our God is able. If we jump ahead for a moment, we see that it wasn't their faith itself that preserved them, but it was the one their faith was in that preserved them. But what does the world tell us today? The world tells us today that faith doesn't need a specific object. Faith is just a feel-good, vague word. It's just a feel-good, vague word. The world says you just got to have faith. As long as you have faith in something and you just think positively, everything's going to turn out just fine. But that's nonsense. That's just a void to, uh, it's a way to avoid wading through the tough questions of life. It's a way to avoid coming to terms with if there is an absolute truth and making yourself think through and wade through the hard questions. Faith itself will not save you. It's the specific object of your faith that matters. Neither will the quantity of your faith save you. It's the object of your faith. We all have faith in something, so I ask you, what is it? Will it bring you through the furnaces of suffering in this life and through death? And then finally, maybe the most important one, definitely the most convicting one for me, true faith is okay with I don't knows and but if nots. Notice what they say. They say, our God is able to deliver us, but if not. These guys confess they don't know the outcome of the situation and they're okay with that. But most of our anxiety comes from not knowing, right? Everybody in here, we have something in our lives where we don't know what the outcome will be, and there's probably some level of anxiety there. But the solution to that anxiety of not knowing, the cure to the anxiety isn't knowing the outcome, because we'll just move on to the next thing. But it's knowing the God who knows all outcomes. That's the answer. That is what it looks like to be okay with the I don't knows in the gray areas of life and enables you to say, but if not. George Mueller said, the beginning of anxiety is the end of faith and the beginning of true faith is the end of anxiety. Not being okay with I don't knows and but if nots, it reveals our lack of faith. It, It shows our need for control, right? I can't deal with I don't know in this situation. I have to know. And it produces an absolutely restless life where you're just rolling bed all night. Or you'll run to everybody in your life and just vent everything in your spirit because you have to know. You're grasping to know. So where in your life do you refuse to live in the I don't know? Where do you refuse to be still and be quiet and wait and trust God? Maybe you're waiting on health test results. 
you're in the gray period and you're waiting to find out a big thing or a potential job change or relocation or just maybe it's just the blurry future in general that you can't deal with not knowing. Or, or, or maybe you still won't say, but if not, about a past suffering. God didn't answer in the way you wanted him to answer, and as hard as that was, you still don't leave that option open to him. And you're still angry about how, you're still angry about how that went down. I, I, I know what you've been through hurts. I can't imagine what you've been through. But true faith can say, even if it don't turn out the way I hoped, I trust the one who knows what's best for me. True faith holds outcomes of situations with an open hand. But some say, well, but, but great faith says it never says if or I don't know because then God won't do it. Isn't that what we're told by many today? Many today would have gotten all over these guys. They would have said, don't you say if or I don't know because then, then God won't do it. That's a lack of faith. And so then when a certain outcome doesn't come about in a situation of suffering, people who believe that way look at the suffering ones and say, you just didn't believe enough. That, that happens. That's real. I know all too well. And it's an ugly, unloving belief. My son was born. He was on life support for months. And it was literally, at times, a minute-by-minute minute, wait and watch and be silent and see if he's going to live or not. And it became hour by hour. And throughout over 100 days of, of mostly that, uh, my wife kept an online journal, one of those Caring Bridge journals, and she documented the journey, which was very brave in the midst of that, vulnerable, showing what we were going through. And people can go on and leave comments and leave verses and just encouraging words to lift up your spirits. And, man, that really carried us through times when it was really hard. And one man who was very loosely connected to us commented, commented and said uh, that our son wasn't getting any better because we weren't praying the right things and we just didn't believe enough. And, and so it was our fault. Don't ever do that to somebody. It's not the quantity of your faith. It's the object of your faith. Because that belief refuses to let God be God. We pray. We hope. We believe. We trust. But we let God be God. His purposes are much greater than ours. We can't see what He sees. Brian Chapel, he said, any faith that insists God must do things our way in order for him to be truly faithful does not fully trust him. It's so hard. The ironic thing is, saying if is actually greater faith. It actually takes more faith to say, God, if this doesn't work out the way I hope, I still trust in you. I'm sorry. It's a humble confession that leaves all options open because God may have a greater plan than what we can see. We hold outcomes of situations with open hands, trusting in the God who holds us in His hand. Don't trust in a particular outcome. Trust in Him. He does all things well. So again, to recap, faith obeys even when it hurts and when it costs us. It doesn't defend itself, but it entrusts itself to God. It doesn't 
avoids suffering but realizes that uh, it itself is displayed most clearly in suffering as hard as it is. It grabs on to another. That's what faith does. And it's okay with not knowing. As hard as it is, it's okay. Uh, And it holds outcomes with an open hand while trusting God with them. Now, we can have all of those right aspects of true faith. All of them. But without the right object, our faith is in vain. And it's meaningless. If your faith is in the wrong thing or the wrong person, there are no guarantees going into suffering. The real question is, will what we grab onto by faith in times of suffering and in death be able to bring us through it? We need a hope that no furnace can destroy. And then the question is, if God is that hope that we grab onto, if he is that object of faith, can we even trust him to bring us through that? And is he really working it for our good? So, God with us, the divine rescue. First, Listen, suffering exposes idols in our lives. That's what suffering does. Because when we suffer, whatever we reach out for is what we worship. Whatever you reach out to, when you go into times of suffering, that's what you worship. That's what we bow down to. Suffering makes us see that the things we thought were holding us up are just vain and hollow and empty. It reveals it like that. So I ask you, what will you reach out for when suffering comes? And when death comes, right? Money? No, that won't help in times of suffering. Family and friends? They're gifts from God, absolutely, but they're not immune from suffering themselves, and they won't always be around. What about the idea of, well, you know what? It was a good run. I had a fun-free life, so, you know, it was fun while it lasted. That'll get me through suffering. The furnaces of suffering will absolutely incinerate those feelings. Will you reach out for your reputation or status or your position? Suffering will actually show you how much those things didn't matter. It puts it into perspective. Whatever we reach out for other than God in hopes to bring us through suffering will burn up in the furnace. We need something that can't be taken away. So what do we see that happens in this story? These three guys, they're tied up. They're fully dressed. They're thrown into the fire. The the furnace is so hot that the guards who throw them in are actually killed because Nebuchadnezzar commands that the furnace is heated up seven times more. And after the furnace is closed, the king jumps up and he's shocked at what he sees. Let's read in verses 24 and 25. The king was astonished and he rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, did we not cast out three, did we not cast three men bound into the fire? And they answered and said to the king, true, O king. He answered and said, but I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. They're no longer tied up. They're walking around. The king is absolutely losing it. They're not hurt, and there's a fourth figure in the fire with him. Who is that? The king says a couple things. He says, first of all, uh, the appearance of this figure is like a son of the gods, like a son of the gods. And later he says it's God's angel in verse 28, which means messenger. So we know it was a powerful, supernatural being, And throughout the Old Testament, we see a figure called the angel of the Lord show up time and time again. He shows up to Moses at the burning bush. He shows up to Joshua before they go into Jericho. Both times, it says the ground became holy ground. The angel of the Lord speaks out of the bush to Moses, and it says God was speaking. This is the Lord himself. Some say it's a pre-incarnate 
uh, manifestation of Jesus, Jesus, the second person of the Trinity. And it very well may be, but one thing we do know is this is God with them in the furnace. My question is, if he's God, why didn't he just pull them out of the flames? Or just, you know, blow them out or something and rescue them? Because surely he could do that. Of all options, why would he go in the fire with them? If I get other options, that's the last thing I'm doing. Why would he go in the fire to deliver them? What does this tell us? What does this point to? Jesus is the supreme appearance, manifestation of God. He's God in the flesh. The, the, the scripture tells us he's the image of the invisible God. And it says God sent him here. And he was put in a situation similar to this. Facing death on the cross, he prayed and confessed in faith that God was able to deliver him. Let this cup pass from me. God, you're able to do it. But then he confessed in faith that there was no other way for God to accomplish his great purpose of uh, saving sinners. I'll drink this cup. So God in love sent his only son into the furnace of his justice in our place for our sin. The hottest furnace of God's wrath. What we deserve for trying to do life apart from him, for bowing down to every image in the world other than him, and through faith in Jesus, by God's grace, Jesus' work is made ours, and we're forgiven and made righteous. And not only that, God comes to be with us always. That is the gospel. His promise of being with us means we don't have to fear anything, including death, or ever fear being alone. So what does the gospel do for us when we suffer? The, the guarantee is not that God will keep us from suffering, like Drew prayed a minute ago. That's not the guarantee, but that God is with us in our suffering, and he will work it for our good, even if we can't see it. He can see it. I mean, we heard in our call to worship and through song, God doesn't promise to take us around the waters. He doesn't promise to keep the fires from us, but he promises to be with us in them. He saves us in the fire, not from the fire. And so, as one commentator said, he said that he experienced death not so that we would escape the experience of death, but so that we would have victory over it. Suffering has come in a much greater form than I can even relate to to many of you, or on some level. And it will come if you haven't experienced it. It will come if you live long enough. Peter says, don't be surprised when suffering comes. Don't be surprised as if something strange is happening to you. It will come. But the good news of what Jesus has done for us is that no matter what the outcomes of our trials on earth are, they are for our good. Because the cross shows us that he's for us. And and, and we can trust him. Romans 8 says if he gave his son for us, do you think he's going to leave you now? If he's done the greatest thing ever, will he leave you hanging when the heat turns up? And the answer to that is of course not. And notice... When these three guys get out of the furnace, they're not about to like fall over dead and their clothes are covered in coal. They're barely hanging on by a thread. It says they didn't even smell like fire. Not a hair on their head was singed. God will not barely bring us through suffering and death. Stumbling to the finish line. 
But he's making us more like Jesus through it all. More glorious than we can imagine. One degree to another. Don't lose heart. The afflictions you're experiencing, they are preparing an eternal weight of glory for you that you can't even imagine. You can't see it. But as we live by faith and obedience in him, that's what he's doing. Even in the furnaces. Specifically, particularly in the furnaces. So as I wrap up, what are you going through right now? What are you holding on to, trusting to bring you through the furnaces of this life and through death? Jesus is the only God who's walked through the furnace for you. Who's heard of a God like that? Who's heard of a God like that? Nebuchadnezzar, who initially said, what God can deliver you out of my hands? Now at the very end, he says, for there is no other God able to rescue this way. He had no idea how true that was. No other God says, when you walk through the flames, I'm going in with you. That means absolutely nothing can separate you from his love. Not even death. Especially not death. In what area of your life are you not willing to say, but if not? Only the gospel. Listen, only seeing Jesus on the cross will enable you to trust God with any outcome. And only then will your heart have peace in the gray. In the not knowing. Trusting Him with all circumstances and outcomes. In what area of your life are you not willing to obey because it might cost you? The rich banquet of reward is much greater than a few crumbs you may gain on earth for bowing down to the images around you. Trust and obey. He will work it for your good. So, if you're not a Christian, abandon the vain things you're trusting in to bring you through suffering and death. They will not bring you through. They won't make it through themselves, much less carry you through. They were not made for that. Grab on to Jesus. He's the only one who went through death for you. He will never leave you. If you're a Christian, I just encourage you this morning to dig your roots deep down into Jesus so that you won't faint uh, when the day of adversity comes. Because it will come. So sink your roots deeper into Him this morning. And finally, if you're suffering as a Christian... Just know that He's with you and He is for you. Look to the cross again and again and know that He is working all things out for your good and He's making you into something glorious. And you'll be like Jesus when you see Him as He is. Old hymn says, Whatever my God ordains is right, here shall my stand be taken. Though sorrow, need, or death be mine, yet I am not forsaken. My Father's care is round me there, He holds me that I shall not fall, and so to him I leave it all. Let's do that this morning. Will you pray with me? Father, uh, living in a fallen, broken world where sin runs rampant uh, is tough, and we are not immune to it. But God, you have conquered sin and death. You have dealt it a death blow And you are making all things new. Father, show us this morning as we look to the gospel that you've given your son for us, that we can trust you. God, teach us as a congregation how to weep with those who weep. How to come alongside our friends who are lost in the darkness of suffering and shine the light of the gospel in. Uh, Teach us what true faith looks like, that it's not always giddy and singing songs and Bouncing around. It's not what these guys were like going into the furnace, but they were steadfast and sober. 
trusting in their God. Teach us to do that. Lord, continue to make us thank you for what you've done in the gospel for us and continue to carry us through until you uh, bring us to yourself and all things are made right again. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, uh, as we leave here, there's no telling what furnace you may kind of enter back into that's already going on or what awaits us. Uh, But the promise of the gospel is that you're not alone and it's not meaningless. Uh, Look to the good shepherd who is with you, who walks through those valleys with you. Look to his son, Jesus, and we will find meaning and hope that he's walked through it for us and he's making a way. So this is the promise, uh, if your faith is in Jesus, that he is with you and nothing can change that. Receive this benediction. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Go in the peace of Jesus Christ. Amen.